0: Welcome to Atmospheric Tales, a podcast that amplifies stories and experiences related to air pollution and climate change from around the world. I'm your host Shahzad Ghani and welcome to another episode of Atmospheric Tales. Our interview for this episode is Mayanka Garwal. Mayank is an environmental journalist at Mogambe, India, who writes on environment, conservation, wildlife, water, and renewable energy. He has worked with the Mint newspaper, DNA newspaper, Indo-Asian News Service, and at the Statesman newspaper. He has also worked with two different NGOs on the issue of right to information and youth development. Our guest today is an expert on climate change law and transnational environmental law. She's a law professor at the National University of Singapore, NUS and the director of the Asia-Pacific Center for Environmental Law. She is also a member of the editorial boards of the Journal of Environmental Law, Chinese Journal of Environmental Law, and Climate Law. Before joining NUS, she was Associate Professor of Law at the University of Hong Kong. She has served as consultant to the Hong Kong Department of Justice, international NGOs, the United Nations Environment Program, and multiple global law firms. I am excited to welcome our guest, Dr. Jolene Lin. Welcome to the show, my and Jolene.
1: Thank you, Shahzad. Welcome, Dr. Jolene. It is a pleasure to have you on the show today. I'm looking forward to learning so much from you, from your vast experience. Thank you for the invitation, and I look forward to the discussion too. Dr. Jolene, what we wanted to start was that one routine campaign that people across the world have is that the information that is usually shared by environmental researchers and journalists often comes with complex words and acronyms. Can we start off by giving the listeners a peek into the world of transnational environment laws and why they are crucial for us?
2: I think the very term transnational environmental law is a bit of a mouthful. So maybe just let's just start with that. Since the 1960s, when environmental movements, particularly in the West, started, there's been momentum towards using law and regulation to respond to environmental issues, particularly as a result of industrialization. So issues such as air pollution, water pollution, soil pollution, climate change, loss of biodiversity, the list goes on. So environmental law is really looking at how the whole body of laws that has developed both at local levels and at the regional levels and at the international level. And together, the local, the regional and the international, they form a transnational web of laws and regulations that hopefully have the effect of protecting our environmental resources. So why are they important? They're important for a couple of things. The environment tends to be a public good. The atmosphere is a public good. It's easy for everyone to use it, but nobody actually pays for the use of it. So in that sense, environmental laws seek to create rights and responsibilities for the users and also for the governments of states that partake in the use of these resources. How do we actually maintain the equitable use of these resources, not just for the present generation, but for generations to come? When one looks at environmental law, there's also been a lot of demarcations within the field itself. You know, there are people who claim to be specialists in air pollution, specialists in marine environment, specialists in, in climate change. I think that that's a trend towards specialisation, both a good thing and a bad thing. By and large, the ultimate goal of transnational environmental law is to use laws that interact at the international,
1: local, and regional levels to create protection for our global environment. It makes a lot of sense, certainly. What we want to understand is there is this constant debate when we talk about transnational environment laws, when we talk about global environment uh, roles, there's this constant debate about the roles and responsibilities of the global north and global south. Do you think that there is an opportunity for the Global South to join hands and demand a global law-based order on the environmental issue? Because as we said, there are a lot of global commons that are involved.
2: I think it's essential. I think that the whole divide between the Global North and the Global South A lot of it obviously has historical reasons behind it. Much of the label, the global South itself, comes about as a result of the decolonization movement, post-World War II, the idea that the global South largely is made up of countries that are former colonies, and a lot of them, they struggle with many development issues ranging from gender inequality, poverty, access to education, access to justice, all these critical issues that remain live in many countries in the global South. When it comes to addressing global environmental problems, such as illegal wildlife trade, biodiversity, conservation, and climate change, it is truly critical that countries unite and go beyond this divide between global north and global south. However, I must confess it is easier said than done because the politics remain very contested, as everyone knows from the climate change negotiations. The negotiations was always very controversial and contested because there was always these two major camps, the developed versus the developing, the global north versus the global south. And you can't go beyond rhetoric if we don't just recognize that, well, the environment needs
1: action and that action requires cooperation. Very important point, Dr. certainly. It actually brings me to another point that I wanted to discuss with you. It is often said that nothing brings together nations like money. When it comes to money or business matters, whether it is COP or whether it is international negotiation on different issues, money is one factor that brings a lot of nations together. So do you think that there is a business case for the global south to band together as far as environmental issues and transnational environmental law is concerned?
2: I'm not sure whether we can call it a business case. But there is definitely a tendency for the global South countries to band together and to negotiate as a block when it comes to the international negotiations pertaining to global environmental issues, whether it's climate change or dealing with ozone depleting substances. I think to me it's a little bit challenging and I'm not sure I would really agree that global South countries should band together because there is a business case for doing so. I think that at least in the climate change arena, it is well recognized that the developing countries are negotiating as a block because basic principles of international environmental law recognize that developing countries, while they share the same responsibilities to protect the environment as developed countries, also have differentiated responsibilities The responsibilities are differentiated because they have contributed less to the problem, so historical responsibility, and also because of capacity. The global South countries generally have less capacity, financial as well as technological, to deal with many of the environmental issues and therefore need assistance from the developed countries. And with that in mind, I think that this idea of the common but differentiated responsibility is also recognized as critical to bringing together global north and global south to the negotiating table.
1: Makes a lot of sense, certainly. So in one of your recent papers, you focused on net zero for the international shipping sector. And international shipping sector is going to be one crucial area when it comes for global south. So do you think that similar to climate change summits where targets are announced by nations but are often not followed or implemented, do you think that there is a possibility of emission reduction in international shipping sector? Because I think the question is just very crucial in context of so many countries looking at new shipping routes once the polar caps melt. They're already trying to explore new shipping routes.
2: That's a really critical question. I think that the idea of whether there will be emission reductions for the global shipping sector is not a question of whether they would be because they are going to be. The question is how they are actually going to be achieved and how environmentally rigorous these targets are going to be. Because it's one thing to set targets. It's another thing to ask whether these targets are going to be enough and soon enough. So to answer that question, first of all, let's take a step back For the first international climate change treaty, the Kyoto Protocol specifically excluded two global commercial sectors. One was aviation and the other was the global shipping sector. So shipping and aviation were always left out of the international climate change law. First of all, because there was no consensus on how to address emissions reductions within these two sectors because of how global they are. Fast forward two over decades. First, the global aviation sector now has a carbon trading scheme in place. This carbon trading scheme will put emission reduction obligations on airlines. It's already in place and is being implemented in the coming years. So that leads the shipping sector to follow suit. At the current moment, the governing body for emissions reductions in the shipping sector would be the International Maritime Organization, the IMO. Within the IMO, there is the general consensus that action has to be taken and nothing can be worse than fragmented regulation. So the idea that different countries, different regions adopt different approaches because that is just bad news for business. So the global shipping companies, the biggest ones like Merg and Evergreen, have all already put forward their official line, which is that they will support climate action and they want a coordinated response globally. Now, the biggest challenge for the shipping sector is that low carbon fuels are not yet available. And the burning of bunker fuel is very carbon intensive. So the challenge for the shipping sector is technological innovation, trying to innovate fuels that will be less carbon intensive and to modify and upgrade existing shipping fleets so that they are more energy efficient. As for the melting of the polar caps and the exploration of new shipping routes, that to me is not going to really change the dynamics. Shipping has always been set to increase in the next couple of decades to 2050 because of the rise in global trade. And there is already some significant steps being taken towards getting the private sector to work with the IMO and with countries to try to reduce the carbon footprint of global shipping.
1: One thing that intrigues me, whether it is the IMO or whether it is UN-led climate conferences, is that when it comes to promises, everyone makes tall promises, all the countries developing or developed world. But especially if you look at it from the historical context, developed world is supposed to lead the cooperation work, whether it is about money, whether it is about technology. But in reality, we rarely see it happening in terms of cooperation without any attachments. Do you think that there is anything happening on that front particularly?
2: Let me take a recent example. In the run-up to the COP26, which is supposed to be hosted by the UK in Glasgow, and I say supposed to be because it was postponed last year due to COVID-19. In the run-up to that, and also at the G7 summit recently in Cornwall, one of the critical issues was to try to gather momentum for real financial commitments by the wealthiest countries in the world towards fulfilling their pledges, which is to find $100 billion a year to fund climate action in developing countries. So that was a pledge that was made in Copenhagen. Court, and since then has been repeated at every single conference of the parties since. Climate finance is one good example of where promises have been made and have not been fulfilled because the climate finance remains very far short of the pledges that countries have made and specifically the wealthy developed countries. And what does it tell us? I think that the facts are just plain for all to see. As you said, it's easy to make pledges, but there are very little mechanisms in international law and international politics to hold countries to account for the financial pledges that they make. And that's why it's really important for other sectors of society to lean in on governments, whether it's by legal action or by social activism or by the media or by civil society actors really bringing awareness and therefore putting pressure on governments to keep their word. In the field of climate litigation, for example, there has not been a single case brought by, say, a developed country or a group within a developed country pressing developed countries to fulfill their financial commitments. And it's interesting to see where that could possibly lead to because these commitments have not been fulfilled, as you mentioned.
1: Makes sense. So when we were talking about climate finance, how do you look at this role of international funds or global banks or global bodies like, say, the Asian Development Bank, the World Bank, International Monetary Fund, or the pension funds of several big countries? How do you look at their role in terms of climate finance and what could be the long-term implications? For example, recently, the Asian Development Bank came out with a policy on just transitions. How do you look at their role in terms of the global action on climate finance?
2: Thanks for the question. It's a really good one. It's really complex as well. So first of all, there's a huge momentum in private investment and in capital markets and for global financial institutions to push for climate action, whether it's by forcing boards to take action or by shareholder activism. So what are their roles? A couple of things. Well, first, all these bodies, institutions, actors, banks, etc. hold trillions of dollars. And because they have so much money, they are the actors that are going to move climate finance. It was always recognized that countries would not be able to fulfill their climate pledges without accelerating private sector investments. So one of the things is definitely to accelerate private sector investments by galvanizing these other actors, whether it's development banks and sovereign funds and international banks, global banks. Number two is that many of these banks are lenders, and they are lenders to activities that could be climate destructive. What comes to mind would be the movement to get banks to publicly announce that they will no longer lend to coal-fired power plants projects. They will not provide financing for these projects. And it's no longer an issue of environmental altruism. It is a business case. We've come to the point where it is widely recognised that the economics of coal extraction and building coal-fired power plants is no longer very favourable in light of the net zero targets that have been adopted by many countries or at least have been announced by many countries. So these projects will soon be stranded assets and banks would be foolish to invest in these projects because they are no longer the cash cows that they once were. And finally, I think that it's important to recognize that the development banks play a very important role in showcasing prototype projects and also building capacity across countries to take climate action. So, for example, if we talk about, say, carbon markets and with the earlier form of the clean development mechanism, the clean development mechanism would not have taken off without the prototype projects that were being developed by the World Bank to show the viability of such a market-based mechanism operating
1: on a global scale? That actually takes me to another question. You know, when we talk about transnational environment law, when we talk about global environment issues, when we talk about global action, such action by banks to change the policies or to update the policies to help the global climate action are good. But there are also examples, or there's also a section of people who feel that the global environmental law and policy debate is futile because it is based on the whims and fancies of a certain group of countries. And also, they repeatedly point out that the Global South gets a raw deal under the present transnational environmental law framework. Can you tell the listeners what is your take on it? Do you think that the Global South gets a raw deal under the present system? How do you look at it?
2: So first, I think that if you look at many of these international environmental agreements, the key reason why they are failing is because of the lack of enforcement. I think it is widely recognized that we don't have a lack of multilateral environmental agreements. There has been a proliferation of environmental treaties in the last three decades. You have environmental treaties covering practically every single environmental issue that is being recognised. And right now, as we speak, in the last one or two years, The issue of marine plastics pollution has really garnered a lot of policy attention. And there is huge momentum right now in the United Nations and in international forums to try to create a global environmental treaty to combat marine plastics pollution. So there's no shortage of treaties. The question is in its enforcement. And enforcement mechanisms in international environmental law tend to be weak, Why are they weak? Because, well, there is no global policeman. The United Nations was designed in such a way that states were not willing to concede power to a independent third party to police state actions. So you don't have what you have in a domestic system where if an environmental law in a country is breached or violated, then there will be prosecutions and there will be sanctions, uh, whether it's criminal penalties or fines or regulatory action being taken. In short, environmental laws provide the lowest common denominator in terms of setting standards globally. And enforcement has been a big problem. And that's why across many environmental issues today, we still see worrying depletion of natural resources, etc., etc. So does the global South get a raw deal? I think that the global South, there is a genuine frustration amongst developing countries that these treaties do not address the needs and aspirations of their people. And you can see why. First of all is that the very institutional frameworks that are developed by these treaties require, say, for example, frequent participation in global meetings three or four times a year. And while the developed countries can afford to have large delegations of diplomats and lawyers regularly attend these meetings, keep track of the developments, fly to Bonn, followed by Geneva, followed by New York, then to Nairobi, then back to London, and then back to their home country, and back to Bonn again, and then back to wherever there's the next COP that's going to be held, developing countries just don't have the resources. It is not uncommon for a single small team of lawyers to be handling the negotiations for 10 to 20 environmental treaties. And so without those resources, what do these countries do? It is not uncommon for them to basically not vote, to abstain from voting on critical issues because they haven't had the time to actually really go through the documents. And so in the end, who decides? It then becomes the developed countries who have lawyers that have had the time to go through the documents and that therefore can vote in good faith. So that's one thing. Second thing to note, I think, is that many of these treaties are well intended in setting up very complex accountability mechanisms. But these complex accountability mechanisms are difficult for many developing countries to implement without significant investment of resources. For example, the illegal wildlife trade, the kind of permit system that's developed under that particular treaty is fraught with difficulties for developing countries with lots of natural resources, but where the administrative systems are not developed enough to engage effectively in such a
1: permit system. This sets us perfectly for what you were telling us before the show, when you mentioned about your ongoing work on climate litigation in the global south, which is specifically around for more than half of the world's population right now. Will you be willing to give our listeners a little sneak peek into what that is about, your work in climate litigation?
2: Absolutely. It will be my honor. And I'm very happy to be able to share that. I've been working in the field of climate litigation for about 10 years now as a researcher. And one of the observations that just kind of kept coming back to me was that the litigation is often taking place in the global north. Whatever you read in the media of cases in the US, in the European Union, and in Australia, But what about the rest of the world? Does it mean that there is no litigation and therefore courts in the Global South do not have anything to say about climate change? And my hypothesis when I started this project was that it cannot be true. It cannot be true that more than half the world does not have anything to say about the role of law in addressing climate change. And so together with a colleague from Melbourne Law School, Professor Jacqueline Peel, we basically wrote an article that was published in 2019 in the American Journal of International Law. And this article basically sought to take an empirical analysis of climate change cases in the global South. So by a very harrowingly slow but effective, I think, method, we went through global databases, national databases, local databases of cases across Asia, Africa, and Latin America. And we found that there were many cases. We can safely say that climate litigation has started in the Global South about 10 to 15 years after it has started in the Global North. It takes on certain characteristics that makes it quite different from climate litigation in the Global North, which makes it hard to detect if you use Global North framings and narratives. So from the Global North perspective, some of these cases would not count as climate litigation. But if we actually took a broader view that appreciated the nuances of the experience of the global south, then yes, these cases should count as climate litigation. So I'll give you an example. Many of the cases in the global South, the courts deal with climate change together with many other existing environmental issues such as air pollution and natural resource protection. While in the global north, many of the cases tend to revolve around science and the targets and issues of whether a particular company or the government has failed to fulfill its climate change obligations under national law. So the framings are quite different. So our work, we found that many of the cases in the global south do take on more of a human rights dimension. Human rights arguments have been used and are increasingly being used in the developed countries in the global north, but we found that in the global south, this framing is particularly popular and it's quite interesting to see where that takes us in terms of climate justice. So yeah, that's basically where we're going with the work. And the 2019 article is just a primer. And in the next couple of years, we would be embarking on a three-year book project. And hopefully by then, I will have more to share.
1: We will certainly wait for that. This discussion about climate litigation actually reminds me of several interesting cases in the global south, where the judiciary stepped in to take action on climate change as a whole. Or, as you said, that while looking at the whole environmental issue from the intersection with other issues. For example, I remember recently one of the Pakistani farmers a few years ago he filed a case against government's inaction, which then finally led to the Pakistan government developing a national policy on the issue. And then there were several cases in a country like India, where you know court declared a river as a living entity? Because there has been so much discussion and so much politics and so much money is being spent on cleaning of rivers in India, which then connects with glaciers, which then connects with the whole policy of infrastructure in fragile Himalayan areas. Do you think that there is this huge space for judicial reforms in the global south to bring fresh ideas for global climate governance?
2: So I think that it's been fascinating how, for example, in Asia, countries like Pakistan, India, and the Philippines have been pretty much at the forefront of climate litigation, largely because of a tradition of an activist court, In the tradition of public interest litigation. And of course, India is often seen as the pioneer in public interest litigation. Indian Supreme Court has basically pronounced on far-reaching, important societal issues, including climate change. So there are definitely voices in the judiciary, and they have been powerful voices. So the case that you mentioned in Pakistan was incredible because the court actually held the government to account and set up a monitoring committee and required the government to come to the monitoring committee periodically to update the committee and the court of what the government has done to fulfill its obligations under the judgment which is to actually implement all the policies and laws that the government had passed but did not enforce And so that's just been a very powerful um, step ahead. What we see moving forward is that courts are increasingly more comfortable in entertaining climate lawsuits. This is not to be taken for granted. I think that previously, maybe about 10, 20 years ago, there was still a high level of judicial discomfort in taking on climate lawsuits because it was thought to be an overreach, a judicial overreach into the domains of executive policymaking and into the role of parliament and legislatures. now I think that with many well-reasoned and well-grounded legal judgments that have really broke ground in climate litigation, we see many more courts across both Global North and Global South being willing and interested and keen to entertain these climate lawsuits. And that's important because that holds governments and other actors to account for their commitments to
1: address climate change. From your experience, Dr. Julian, from someone who is deep into the subject of climate change and transnational environment law, please tell us, are there enough laws actually to govern global commons? I know you have addressed a part of it, but do you think that there are enough laws to govern the whole global commons issue or their implementation? Is there enough infrastructure? Is there enough support to support their implementation? Or do you think that there's an urgent need or there is a pressing need to get a new set of laws to address the changing dynamics that we have in the climate change debate?
2: Thank you. That's a great question. So there are many different types of environmental global commons. I'll use the climate, the atmosphere as a point of reference. So if we look at, say, the issue of climate change, I don't think we have a lack of laws. We do have the difficulty with developing at the international level an ideal treaty to address climate change, largely because such a treaty has to take into account so many different interests. And they all tend to pull in slightly different directions. Within the climate change space, for example, you have the global north. And within the global south itself, you have different groups. Low-lying island nations have very different interests from newly emerging economies that are rapidly growing and which also have very different interests from landlocked countries. So it becomes difficult to develop the kind of rigorous ideal treaty that one would imagine if you were given the freedom to dream it up in an environmental law class. But I think it comes back to what I previously mentioned. I don't think that there's an issue of the lack of laws, but there is a huge problem with the lack of enforcement. If we look now at the climate change regime, Paris Agreement is based on bottom-up action. There is practically not a compliance mechanism of the sort that one would require to hold governments to account. So if you look at the entire Paris Agreement, the language of compliance is really about trying to nudge countries into action and to provide support for countries that fail to take action, rather than say, if you don't take action, then there will be some serious consequences. And I think that's just the reality. The reality is that if you put in place such sanctions-based compliance mechanisms, countries are just free to exit the treaty. There's nothing to force a country to not exit a treaty when the treaty no longer is something in its interest. One of the examples I'll give is with the Kyoto Protocol. When it was time to come to account for the fulfillment of climate change obligations in the Kyoto Protocol at the end of the first period, Canada knew that it would not be able to fulfill its obligations. It had far exceeded its permitted emissions levels because of fracking. So what does it do? It chose to exit the treaty, much to the shock of the international community. But then again, it's perfectly legal for a country to say, I no longer want to be part of this because it is no longer in my interest.
1: Thank you, Dr. Judeen. I have just one last question, which I want to understand. The way a pandemic struck the world, It triggered a lot of conversation around zoonosis. It triggered a lot of conversation around environmental crime. A set of researchers, law experts, they have a plan to approach the International Criminal Court to address or to coin a new term called ecocide. It comes out very strongly when you compare with terms like genocide. Ecocide comes out as a very strong term. Do you think there is a space for that? What is your take on this idea?
2: So it was recently announced that the Stop Ecocide Foundation had brought together a group of legal experts to formulate a legal definition of ecocide. And this group was co-chaired by Professor Philip Sands, one of the foremost experts in international environmental law. So as to the question of whether there is space, I think there is space for a lot of things. I think there is value to the formulation of such a term to the extent that it recognizes that environmental damage is a crime against humanity in the sense that It causes huge damage and should be recognized as such. Will it lead to a successful ICC case? I think that remains to be seen. The ecocide definition doesn't sit very nicely with the existing body of international humanitarian law and international criminal law. And so I think it remains to be seen how jurists and the International Criminal Court will be able to interpret the idea of Ecosight, who to hold responsible, what kind of remedies should be available, what kind of reparations can be made available, and to whom. Because ultimately, all of us are a victim of Ecosight.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Jolene. I thoroughly enjoyed asking these questions and getting your take on that, because your answers have provided me a new way of looking at a lot of international discussions. I thank you so much for your time.
2: Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity.
0: With that, I would like to thank our guest, Dr. Jolene Lin and our interviewer, Mayanka Garwal for joining us on this episode of Atmospheric Tales. Thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe and share.